Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Hi, everybody. Just wanted to give everybody a trigger warning for this episode. Uh, in this episode, the topics of suicide come up, as well as uh, school shootings. So uh, if those are areas uh, that may cause trauma for you, um, uh, you might not want to listen to this episode. Thanks. Welcome to another episode of the Bay Speak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raymond. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Yuki Prudomia. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that, your invitation. And um, so honored to be here. I'm okay. excited. My name is Yuki Kurumiya. Yeah. And Wonderful. you pronounced my last name beautifully. Thank you oh, so much. Well, thank you. Uh, so before we get started, I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the territories of the Homox, Klehus, Homoko, and Plam and First Nations, uh, who, who were together part of the borderless Coast Salish community of indigenous folks in Canada and the US before we came and before we colonists came and separated them into reserves. Uh, grateful to be on the unceded lands of the of, of of these great people and grateful to learn and and grow and kind of connect with the land in any way that I can. Um so to get started, Yuki, uh, maybe just let's start by kind of just hearing a little bit about yourself. Curious, kind of, you know, kind of how you got into the the field of, of behavior analysis, kind of what your sort of origin story for getting in the field was, and uh, and uh, yeah, and just kind of how that brought you to the work you're doing now. Oh, thank you, Ben. Um, I came to this field of behavior analysis um, maybe later than everybody else like in this field already. Um, mm. My life has been very kind of back and forth since mm. I having, you know, marriage and, you know, working married and then having children and then realized, hey, the education system needs to improve. So I actually started taking the education uh, master's degree program after I had two children. Mm. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring in more um behavior analytic support to international communities in Japan. That's where mm. I started. Perfect. And then my professor in a master's degree was actually a um, child student, um, Dr. Heward. Um, mm. Dr. Kim Kilu was my master's degree program at University of Michigan. And she is just totally um, behavior analytic person because mm. of it. Of course, Dr. In the Hayward. Sure. And so I was so fascinated by that. And then went on and moved to the States and I'm like, hey, I need to do something different. So I pursued credentialing of special education or you know, a behavior analytic, analytic education uh, field. Mm. And then realized that, hey, if I become a classroom educator to help uh, students or parents, and that's only the population I can help, then I need to help the um, teachers and trainers and you know, more, be larger. Um, stakeholders so that the children can be, you know, helped more mm. um, quality education and, you know, quality life throughout their life, um, education and then afterwards, right? So mm. that's when I shifted my to the behavior analysis and, you know, um, I came to this field probably later than everybody else. That's what I meant. <laughs> and then now I am um, finished my master's degree and PhD uh, the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I am at a um, 
research, uh, advanced project research instructor. So I am uh, um, guiding a lot of thesis students in their project, in thesis projects, in research, and also uh, some dissertation students in this in the area of um, maybe uh, ACT or staff training, mm. um, other areas as well. Um, so that's why I'm at. And um, the reason why I, I did my research that I am going to share the topic today is mm. because of my cultural background and mm. disparities I'm seeing in a behavior health services and mental health services. Mm, mm, mm. Cool. So you're at the Chicago School now teaching and yeah. uh, and uh, and and supervising students who are doing dissertations and theses. Um, did you ever? A lot of folks that are kind of gotten the behavior analysis kind of came the autism route. Um, did you did you ever kind of work in sort of that autism realm, or did you kind of go right into into teaching? Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yes, of course. To for me to be able to get the BCBS certification, right? Um, I need the hands-on training. So I actually joined a really large company. Mm. Um, the behavior. Uh, providing services to individuals with disabilities mm. so autism and other developmental disabilities and I was exposed to many many different change different challenging behaviors mm. from the age of little children like little two before two to adults so I started with the early intervention um like autism population and then when of course, and also across to adults with the different disabilities or challenges. They might not have any diagnosis at all, mm. but more of the addiction or those other things as mm. well. Mm. So uh, I have been very lucky to be able to kind of um, gain hands-on training and also uh, supervising in experiences, um, the consultation um, across many populations, different types, different um, behavior challenges. Diagnosis mm. are themselves are not an issue probably as we all know right how we actually identify you know how the how the contingencies are made and how those behavior patterns mm. are made um especially our intervention probably developmentally we need to really kind of well you know follow up and mm. um skill acquisitions are really important too but as they get older uh, more of the contingencies that we need to be able to kind of analyze really on the spot and being flexible in analysis and um, behavior analytically sound way of doing that. So important. Mm. So I actually do provide a consultation for BCBAs and supervisors uh, as part of my practice as well. Um, at the same level, I am mm. also expanding myself to from, from the individual one-on-one intervention when we actually work on, I mean, everybody in this clinical field probably have a field the same. Same um, as a clinician, we really put so much effort and time and our energy to help each individual in front of us, including their caregivers or staff who take who take care of those individuals. Mm. However, though, whatever, however, we do. We are so limited to this one-on-one uh, intervention or staff training of the team. Mm. And then contingencies are around those individuals. So what I'm trying to say is that operant, operant conditioning of one-on-one intervention is something we need to do. And also we need to realize that the cultural level of selection, the Skinner mentioned, mm. um, we 
you know, phylogenetic level of selection, of course, you know, we the science is developing. Mm. So that's more that's more to come. And we really look forward to kind of doing that work and collaboration with that level of behavior analysis and from other sciences level too. Um, operant, operant conditioning, operant level, uh, ontogen, ontogenic level of selection that we often kind of intervene one-on-one mm. uh, intervention clinician, intervention clinic, clinical level. And then we also need to see how the culture and community communities are selecting and uh, reinforcing mm. those behavior pattern in each culture. Or a cult, when I say culture, as we all know by now, it doesn't mean specific language and right. you know, races or anything. It's more of the unit of people where they kind of form. It can be a couple, it can be a family, it can be just a um, you know, small village, small mm. place. Um, can be a country, or it can be different generations. My generation, Japanese culture, um, the younger generation and the older generations and different generations are totally different cultures. They have different culture, cultural kind of perspectives. So we cannot say like, you know, one background means mm. one culture. No, we need to be very sensitive. So, um, so, okay, I went on different, different direction, but okay. uh, what I'm trying to do more now is the prevention science, at the on at cultural level of selection kind of analysis. So mm. one one model is pro-social work, trying to integrate individual interest to and the community interest, the group interest, and see what's workable, what's not workable, um, kind of analyzing the contingencies. And that kind of relates to the work um, um Dr. Sigrid Glenn. I think started. I think she talks about a lot about um, meta contingencies and interlocking mm-hmm. contingencies. So mm-hmm, that's different mm-hmm. di- direct um, contingency management that we often we often hear. We need to have the conceptualization to begin with and OBM organizational level. However, though, when we talk about more soft side of you know what we say, how we form our cultural rituals, right? Cultural mm. behavior pattern is done through, of course, a direct contingency management, but also through the language in how we talk to our generations, right? So it's more indirect contingencies mm. that we are looking at. So the combination of that um, one model right now we have is a pro-social model. So I am uh, part of the pro. Uh, I'm, I am also part of the kind of training teams right now. Um, I'm so honored to be invited to be the, one of the trainer facilitator to create more pro-social facilitators. Mm. Um, so that's what I also do as a consultation clinical work. Um, but it's really interesting when we do that because uh, I feel like that is where, that is what we are still lacking in the field of behavior analysis, collaboration across the fields and disciplines and looking at the cultural uh, level of changes and how we can actually contribute to that as a a science, a behavior science. And that also leads to the prevention science. You know, we know the behavior pattern. We can predict the behavior pattern if we kind of analyze the contingencies and what happens. and those things, and we see all those social societal issues all over the world, mm. right? Um, especially COVID, COVID time, we saw so many um, sad situations all over the world. Um, not only the COVID, you know, pandemic situation, but 
some other factors that kind of surface to our our world. You know, the mm. vis- got visible and uh, conflicts um, and yeah. those kind of discriminations more. And the behavior patterns that we observed all of a sudden kind of surfaced all and above the water. Um, those things we need to kind of look at. Um, so it's, I have all kind of wide interests, like yeah. <laughs> broad interests, but I like to kind of have everybody kind of get interested in it and see what we can do, um, collaborate across the fields. And um, so that's, that's what I'm so passionate about. And that result that is resulting in right now um, development of the SIG uh, special interest group at ABAI. It's still in the process. It, it's it's it will be formally hopefully mm. approved, but it's informally approved. I just have to kind of work on some revision of the um, application because of their the changes that the expectation changed. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that that um, evolution sciences um, perspectives uh, from the level of phylogenic to ontogenic and cultural level selections. And um, it's because when we go back to the um, phylogenic and more genetic things, it becomes more um, experimental behavior analysis is needs to be more involved more and mm. the collaboration with the neuroscience and other sciences. And then, so that kind of uh, very macro level of collaboration and exploration from the perspective of evolution of us and the behavior patterns, right? And then cultural levels, so a bigger level societal issues. So I'm hoping that the conversation that we can hold in an interest group can kind of expand our uh, perspectives it's been discussed since the um, Skinner's time. It's been discussed, mm. but I haven't, you know, I think we can put more effort into that to kind of um, physicalize it, actually mm. make things happen. Uh, it's a small power when I, you know, it's a small thing I'm starting probably to begin with, but I'm hoping that a lot of people will come and join. And the first um, kind of meeting at ABAI that talks about where we are at in terms of development and uh, will happen during that ABAI convention coming up next weekend, next or just weekend, next weekend. Yeah. Um, so I hope that many people will be interested in come. Right on. So sorry, what's, what is the special interest group? It's for what? It's a what special interest group? It's called Behe, um, Evolution Sciences mm. Dig. So, and then when it says evolution sciences, um, people might think that, you know, what is that? But it's Mm -hmm. more about a holistic look at how, you know, we can actually touch on on the phylogenic, ontogenic, and this, you know, cultural level of selection based on the Skinner and also working on direct contingency kind of analysis of that and indirect contingency analysis of that. So main things, one-on-one is probably we hear more often about uh, on ACT, the new model in psychological behavior flexibility model, right? To increase mm. those flexibility. And um, this needs to be paired with the direct contingency management that we often do. So in a one-on-one intervention, we, you know, we typically do program to help individuals change their behaviors, right? Mm. Uh, but when that when that doesn't work, what are we gonna do? 
don't we have all the experiences? However, we help whatever the program we do, some other variables keep kicking that we cannot actually observe. Mm. And then the program, the programming does not, might not produce the outcome the way we want. And then sometimes mm. when we give up, then these individuals who come to us, regardless of the child, you know, the little children to adults population, if we actually give up, who's going to actually help more? what kind of other services are available after us, right? To help them change their, change their behaviors and uh, leave, live their own more socially significant, mean, meaningful, independent lives. Mm. So um, I think our field can do more of that. Um, of course, we need to be very careful because the training needs to be done. Um, we should, we also have already, we need to have a really sound behavior analytic uh, background and principles need to be there. Um, mm. So the training needs to be there. So those conversations should happen. We would like to have hold those conversations as well. Um, so that's part of it. And there are two other talks that um, I think I really would like to recommend during the ABAI. Um, yeah. um, there's one uh, with Dr. Um, Harry Penny Parker mm. and Dr. Neil Martin and Dr. Naoko Sugiyama and chaired by uh, Frank Paris. There's a discussion, a panel discussion about this kind of societal issue in a behavior analysis. Uh, there's a symposium uh, discussant is uh, discussed discussed by Dr. Tony Anthony Bigelin, and I'm mm. also part of this presenter as a, mm. uh, during the symposium. And then we talk about um, and then Dr. Zabo, and um, there's an uh, sorry, I blanked out the name. Okay. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful professor. I feel terrible, but he. I, I admire this, uh, this person. So we we kind of did a symposium to touch on the areas that you know that I've been talking about more in prevention science and cultural change and how we can actually mm. um, do this work. And was that education do, was that Dr. in the uh, No, Dr. Martin Neil Martin is going to be part of the panel discussion ah, with was uh, Henry Penny Packer um, mm. and uh, Kosugiyama. Dr. Nagos yeah. Yema, led okay. by Penny um, um, Frank. Then a symposium. Oh, mm. You know what, Ben, let me actually give you some information about those programs after this. If it's Perfect. Okay yeah, we'll, we'll put them in the show notes. No worries. Good, good. Lots Thank of you. names to remember. You don't have to, it's, it's all good. I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have remembered any of them. So, <laughs> thanks for Well, there, I'm, I'm sure this is I mean, a lot of um, behavior. Analysts and aspiring, aspire, aspiring behavior analysts and psychologists in any other field who come to the ABAI and collaborate with us will mm. benefit from this these conversations. I believe. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, no, we'll definitely link the specific uh, panels and symposiums and dates and all that, so so folks can find you. And uh, we are recording today on May seventeenth, but I I, I promise that uh, this is still going to come out before ABAI, so folks that are listening can. Can uh, will not miss have not not miss any of the workshops or, or when when before they kind of go to sign up. So that'll that'll happen for sure. I'm curious. You've you've uh, you you do have a a very wide spread as far as the work you're doing, and you're in a lot of big areas that um, I wouldn't mind just hearing a little bit more about. Uh, I, I haven't had a lot of conversations sort of. 
I've never really had any conversations where folks have talked about things like pro-social and prevention science and evolutionary science. I've heard about them. I've definitely, you know, heard lots of references to Dr. Biglin and, and others uh, kind of doing this work, but I know very little about it. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what, first off, what, you know, and I, th- I imagine it's it, it's a broad area, but uh, what prevention science is, what that's all about, and maybe kind of in, in, in you know, for, with a couple of examples for that we might be familiar with. And then after that, tell us a little bit about what this whole pro-social thing is. Oh, okay. I'm glad that you're interested in it. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. And um, pro-social, um, okay. Um, prevention sciences, depending on probably where you're coming from and which discipline you belong to, sure. probably we that will be explained totally different. Mm. Um, I'll do my best from my perspective, what yes. it means to me is that um, it's it's all about what we can do to prevent any, you know, I mean, from my perspective, behavior analysis to kind of prevent any societal issues to come. Anything that we do um, related to that is a behavior um, prevention science, mm. I believe. And that's all I have as a definition. Yeah. And, you know, is that is something we do, don't we? Because our science do, our data and analysis of what we do predict the future behavior pattern mm-hmm. we can see, right? At an individual level and a group level. Mm-hmm. That's what we do using the behavior analysis. As us, you know, that's our science. If we can predict what's going to happen based on the consequence, that consequence pattern, the contingence that we are seeing, then why don't we use that? Our 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 strengths of our science mm. to prevent any other societal issues. Mm. Um, I think I I saw one uh, call kind of briefly mentioned that by Dr. Anthony Biglin the other day in our community um, community email thread as you know we are we would like to talk about more child neglect and uh, abuse. Mm. And if we talk about, and we often see the child abuse and neglect and those maltreatment issues, you know, all over the place, all over the world, with yeah. you know, due to many, many different variables sure. depending on the context that they're in. And if we know, if we can analyze how that behavior pattern is created and maintained, then we can prevent. And then, of course, a one-on-one level of intervention is very limited. We, mm. you know, parent parental training might be available in general as prevention, but then guess what? How can we actually prevent that? Then that can be a cultural community level of prevention, mm. and how we actually collaborate as a community. Implementation-wise, I'm talking about mm. how the community can com- collaborate and share the information, create a you know system. To mm. um um to uh, monitor is not the word I'm looking for. Mm. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? These the severance? No, what was the word for? I think you can tell me. I'm looking for the word surveillance. Surveillance. Yeah. 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 There you go. It's. I think that's one of the systems that you know one of the systems that we can look at and mm. and. Kind of broader, wide, and gentle, and kind, and compassionate sense. I remember Dr. Todd. I read some of his papers in the past, and he talked about that programming, the implementation at the culture community level. So that's something we can do. Um, 
you know, if we look at the prevention science from the medical field, of course, we mm. often hear about this prevent the cancer, this prevent this, this prevent sure. that. But guess what? The cancer cells are very interesting. The cells itself themselves are living creatures and, mm. and organisms, right? So they are behaving the way we behave the same way. And they also have the really interesting pattern evolutionary sciences wise, evolutionary wise, they behave really interesting. Mm. They actually do collaborate to survive. Mm. They do. Um, so that work, um, you know, the, and that relates to i'm moving on to the pro-social work yeah, yeah. um the pro-social um method the model was developed by um um david Sloss, david david wilson yes. and um uh, paul atkins and stephen hayes mm. uh, they actually kind of combined the book together and behaviors uh, behavior analytic perspectives is embedded in that analysis mm. is there and then evolution sciences um, from uh, from the expertise of David David Wilson is there, um, right? David Wilson is there, and um, and Paul Atkins' amazing analysis of social behavior, um, social counseling, and psychology aspects is embedded together. Hmm. But very very unique about that is the i think evolutionary sciences aspects and and that kind of kind of relates to behavior analysis right because um all the behavior changes at the cell level has you know three-term contingencies right the consequence by uh selection by consequence at the mm. small level and the larger level and and how those creatures, even the beetles or um, any tiny, tiny cells, actually mm. evolve, evolve, select, very select, um, very select and retain the behavior pattern as a group. And that actually passes on to the next generations. Mm. Right. We often talk about epigenetic now. Yeah. Uh, so those things are happening. Um, so. That is something that, and, and within that uh, evolution science, evolutionary science that um, David talks about, the one of the main thing is the multi-level selection that we are looking at that hmm. might interest everybody. Like I said, even the cancer cells, if you look at it, they actually collaborate to survive. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Wow. Um, right. Exactly. And then. Um, and then if we look at it, you know, the animals too, they actually kind of, um, they're very ego, um, self-centered individualistic, you know, group of, group of, you know, the units, yep. they actually, in the long run, they do not survive as a species, but if they collaborate, the collaborative, um, creatures or cells, whatever the level, um, they actually evolve and mm. they survive, but we are looking at the long term. Mm. And the immediate consequence, of course, you know, that maybe the selfish behavior with that organism will, of course, get the, con you know, reinforcing probably consequence most of the times if they want to be selfish, you know, they want to grab their nutrition or food or money, whatever, they can mm. get what they want, probably with their immediate impulsive behavior. But if you look at the larger group, 
right, the whole entire group, then that group actually do not survive mm. in the long run. Then, um, and it also talks about um, the pro-social model. So it's a very com. if we, I can probably talk about it one hour, but <laughs> well, I do not know if it's uh, the purpose of it, but it's, um, so that's evolutionary sciences. And also other aspect of the pro-social model is the, um, the work that um, by Eleanor Ostrom, she received the, uh, she's the first uh, lady, the woman who received a um, Nobel Prize in economy. Mm. She's actually, she studies, she's a, she's a PhD in a politics. I think politics. Mm. Um, there is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop the first secret word is pro-social and then she actually realized that um you know a lot of communities have a lot of difficulties because of lack of collaboration and the mm. resources are not divided the way it should be um and then she investigated um one of them the, the the work that she received a um uh, Nobel prize was for her project that she worked on in uh, Southern California, where the water resources kind of got lower because of the egoistic behavior, egoistic the individualistic yeah. behavior yeah. across the, um, the across the industries and stakeholders along the way of the water line throughout California, and then because of the individuals or the groups and organizations, industries. Uh, use their water the way they want it very selfishly the water level went down and what right. happened was that you know the you know ocean water started coming in and then what happens nobody will have a drinking water mm. and then and then um, all those fields for you know cows for drinking waters and uh, all those crops need a water um started affecting so she actually identified eight eight um principles that community needs to that is going to help community to stick together mm. and uh distribute the resources um with equity um in a very I, when we say equal we need to be very careful you know the more contribution that we have um, the individual group holder uh, stakeholder has the more 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 reinforcers, mm. more rewards should be you know because it needs to be matched. It should not be, uh, it should not be like an equally like a, okay. There should not be no. There should not be free riders that kind of things. So mm -hmm. she actually created eight eight principles that um, we want to kind of hold high mm. for the community to be able to collaboratively um, 
you know, work together. Mm. And so that's why the pro-social model uses in a different wording, um, kind of more, more, you know, social, more kind of approachable wording that they created, but it's still mm-hmm. that uh, eight principles that uh, Ostrom, Ostrom developed. Mm. And then, um, so that community level work, behavior change, requires the behavior and psychological flexibility when you work with a lot of stakeholders who have a lot of a lot to say mm. and a lot of interest their own community interests too right that those stakeholders come you know as, as a representative of their own community they have their voices are different they're kind yeah. of hit by each other mm-hmm. and um rapport building trust building and the psychological and behavior flexibilities are needed Mm-hmm. So that's where the uh, contextual behavior science um, perspectives are needed. And um, Stephen Hayes' contextual behavior science pieces and ACT pieces are huge within the pro-social model as well. Mm. The goal is to integrate the individual interest and group-level interest because mm. we it's hard to do so that um, creating the flexibility, the behavior and psychological flexibility at individual level and the group level and see where we can march and develop the target, the goal plan and um, actually engage in that behavior and mm. based on the eight principles that we have and then and have developed a really clear, uh, clear monitoring system with fairness. Mm. Um, it's, it's a process of, you know, when we implement that, it's already a process of work. Um, it's it's fun and challenging, but it's really, really, really needed. We often have the OBM type of intervention. We, you know, when we actually get the um, referral for the work or consultation at the organizational level, we might be, um, I don't want to say traditional, but um, be our current perspective as a mm-hmm. behavior analyst, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we often might go to the OBM type of analysis, which is really important. And uh, you analyze everything, just like an, any you know, intervention, one-on-one individual intervention, you analyze all aspects of the contingencies within the group and the organization. We try to kind of figure out antecedent interventions and consequence manipulations and where those kind of resources and training are, you know, feedback provided or not. And we can do that kind of intervention too. And what if that doesn't work? And so that's again more indirect and indirect contingency with a language and communication cognition level of um, interactions are in play, and we cannot observe. Then we need to kind of surface it. The language needs to surface, surface, and mm. then uh, we need to have the skills to analyze and come up with a plan to intervene. So the pro-social model for me, a lot of pro-social facilitators exist and many from different areas. Uh, great mm-hmm. things about pro-social model is that that training and that method is not only for this or one specific group of people or this discipline. It's mm. any, any, you know, societal level of cultural level of intervention, right? 
Um, but our strength is that if we can work on that uh, surfacing the language and the cognition level of the conflict, that within a group using this model, and then we can analyze the function of it as mm. behavior analysts within a group, what's actually working, what's not working, mm. what's reinforcing the behavior change, behavior pattern within the group. Um, so that's part of our strengths. I mean, I, that's how I see myself and as a behavior analyst, we can see mm. the contingencies more. And then once we, once we can, once we see the language of our behavior in a way it's reinforced or not, then the actual implementation of the strategies are going to be very, maybe easier. I don't want to say easier, more straightforward. We can actually go back to our principles, our behavior analytic principles and come up with the actual plan to change the behavior pattern. So analysis of that uh, whole group contingencies is something we need to learn, but we mm. can do it. I hope I explain it in an interesting way that I, I don't know. But yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it definitely it sounds really cool, but it also sounds really like it's got a lot of moving parts. And so mm. I'm, I'm wondering if you can just describe maybe one example of 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 maybe how the the sort of a, a pro social facilitator might do their work, or how you you kind of used use the model in, in your own work. Sure, I think one of the very popular one that you popular ones that you often hear is that work um, in a Sierra Leone during okay. the um, Ebola. The, the outbreak of Ebola. Uh, oh, the, Ebola, right, yeah. Ebola, yeah. yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, I think, okay, I was not prepared to bring up her name. Mm. Um, but um, amazing person. I, I will come up with her name. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out and we'll share it later. It's all good. Yeah, so she what she did was that, um, uh, the issue was that during the Ebola pandemic, uh, in that area, they're culturally, they were, when the family members or community members passes passed away. The community members usually touch the body and mm. change their clothes and hug and show the respect and appreciation, love, and that's mm. how they say the final farewell. And of course, that doesn't work for the community. That you can see the results of that's it, right? It and that was yeah. yeah. So the whole um, whole team needed to work on that to kind of. Kind of cultural sensitive way in a cultural sensitive way to persuade mm. them not to do so mm. but the the that's a cultural ritual it's really hard for us to say no uh, then resulting in kind of separating them forcefully and then pro-social work came in what we did i think what they what they did i did not do the work i'm just kind mm. of sharing that one story yeah 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 that they did educate educate the teachers you're you within the area uh to be an act facilitator act trainer mm. to kind of help identify what works what doesn't work for the community what do you want to do as a community you know what's important to you and to get to what's important to you is this what's happening helpful for you all mm. meaning that you hug this and then yeah other people are also then 
passing away too. It's kind of spread the virus and other people mm. die. So they realize it doesn't work. Then as a community, what's the alternative way to show the respect and send their loved ones to a different level of their lives, right? Mm. And they um, they actually worked on the, act, they used the ACT matrix, mm. right? And so personal metrics, I think they use a collective metrics. They talked about it together and realizing what works, what doesn't work, and what can we do together to get to the values, get mm. closer to what's important to them individually and culturally yes. as a group. So they, they as a group, okay, not the facilitator told them, but they yeah. chose to use the banana uh, tongue, the the leaf, the the stem. Yeah. As a part, uh, just to, rep- to to represent the, um, their family members who passed away or the community wow. members, and then um, so representing that uh, important person, they actually hugged and changed the clothes. So they actually went through the all rituals that they wanted to do, and they buried those buried those bodies. So they were able to, you know, kind of identify the alternative replacement behavior, alternative, you know, behavior, functional yeah. equivalent behavior, and then um, that actually sees that pandemic of that um, Ebola around that area at that time. Wow! So that's one. So as you can see, it's more of the facilitator work is to help the group to come up with that, you know. What works, what doesn't work, what's important to all of us, and what what can what can we do to kind of get to what's important to us as a community? Mm. So it's not us kind of pushing them to do. Other very in- interesting work that I recently did was a um, very small kind of very Japanese community specific, but yeah. um, there's an one organization that asked me to kind of help them, uh, kind of help them unite the manager level of um, uh, managers within the organization and company Mm. Um, towards working towards their um, budget allocation meeting at the Mm. end of the uh, fiscal year. What happens every year is that the the managers of different departments kind of fights over the uh, distribution of the money from the company funding, right, for the next year. So they are very self- Okay, I don't want to say very selfish, but because I don't know, I don't want to offend mm. the company. <laughs> but originally, their individualistic approach yeah. from the different um, um, managers came, and then resulted in each department did not get what they wanted for the next fiscal year, mm. Mm. and that ended up with that, of course, and you know, hitting the ceiling of the organization, company itself, development, evolution of it. Mm. Right. So realizing that um, they asked me to kind of um, help them kind of unite and find a way to work towards the big meeting for the fiscal budgeting meeting. Um, so I worked on I, I did the uh, workshop, no workshop training with them online during that pandemic time. So that was online. Mm-hmm. And then um, kind of tr- trust building among the manager managers and then um, kind of soliciting the issues among the managers mm-hmm. and then um, kind of identifying the interest among, among the managers and then in, um, integrate them 
right? And yep. so what's feasible, what's not feasible, looking at the bigger picture as a company. And that also has to, you know, when we do this, we also have to kind of work on the individual level of evolution, what they actually want to do in the future in this organization as well. Mm -hmm. So that can actually function as a motivational operational <laughs> operations uh, when we work on the uh, pro-social work. We cannot forget about um, personal level of um, interest shared among mm -hmm. uh, among the team members. Otherwise, it can be still like a superficial conversation. Mm. Um, so many perspectives need to be brought in. So um, the pro-social work I did, um, there is a model we follow. So we did um, with a flexibility. Mm. I did mm. some of the three act trainings, um, yep. training procedures, and also personal metrics and collective metrics, and also goal development. That's where we need to kind of do a lot. And that's where I think we strive as a behavior analyst. We can we strive, we can do it really well. So um, long story short, throughout the work they actually decided to work together to come up with the task list for the preparation as a preparation towards the fiscal budgeting budgeting meeting towards mm. the end of uh, the end of the annual year fiscal yeah. year and then there are so many things they need to kind of identify and work together um so there's so many tasks they identified it's daunting right and then uh, sometimes mm -hmm. discouraging. However, though, the eight core processes designed that we worked on among the team members uh, that really helped because they already have the shared values and interest mm -hmm. already mm -hmm. identified that. They also identified how to reward, how to reinforce, how to extinguish. No, this is to be behavior analytic. Hmm. How to kind of intervene or reward good behavior and not not helping behavior. So they created right. a system. They also created a system to monitor the progress of the hmm. project as well. They wow. also developed a system to kind of how to help each other when things are going this way and that way. Hmm. The conflict resolution. So that's a part of the, the principles. Uh, they also identified you know, the way to honor their autonomy within their own department. So that's another important part, uh, CDP7. They have to have their own autonomy, you mm -hmm. know, self. Um, so that's that's self-guided behavior change within the organization and they respect each other. Mm -hmm. And then they also kind of came up with a way to collaborate as a whole organization. So that's a CDP8. The whole system was already discussed and they already learned about it. Um, the actual development of the task list and implementation was really, really smooth. And the outcome of the meeting was really positive. Mm. So again, you can see CDP was important. Behavior, flexibility, psychological flexibility was important. And so that throughout the procedure, I was um, that pro-social model was also important. The the way in that organization creates. The other thing that was important is that a focus on um, rapport building myself 
my, mm. between myself and also the participants, right? The whole group. Mm. Mm. And also rapport building, trust building within the team members. Yeah. Um, and then the outcome, how to make that outcome happen. Um, this is very important because pro-social work, like you said, very, very vague. Yeah. And there might not be a tangible outcome. Right. Right. And that's, I think the behavior analysts like us are so strong at it. Right. We know how to work on the OBM style of task analysis um, or any task analysis of behavior change. Right. So we can actually monitor it. What I did was I gave the template of task analysis, kind of write down the items that you all need to do and who's going to monitor this by when. Yeah. Okay. And then this, and also provided the Excel file with the um, graphs already kind of done, ready to be yeah. kind of embedded numbers, just yeah, like yeah, here, yeah. samples. So they were actually kind of, kind of monitored through. And I didn't have to do anything because they already allocated their own tasks among the team among the team members the monitoring system was there perfect so <laughs> yeah all i had to say okay well so discuss this and come up with this task and this is what you can use and then with the eight principles and you know the you know the way you decided to do as a team use this and go for it and then i just kind of periodically met with them and i saw the graph going like doing the <laughs> cumulative record of course yeah, yeah. and then actual goal and timeline by this day uh, the um, uh, the target target cumulative cumulative number is here and by this day here so it's a cumulative record right mm -hmm. and then it almost like on the same level they actually met wow. in a very collaborative collaborative environment and feeling among the team members mm. that was created I actually um that uh, Project lead and myself presented the study at the last year's ACBS conference. Oh. Hopefully, we can actually publish the paper as a pilot study or something. But that'd be interest interesting. That'd be awesome, yeah. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. just I'm curious. Sort of, I know it's going to be different for everything, but how long was that whole process? Good question. You know, training itself that I did with them was, um, I think, four or five, two, three hour sessions mm -hmm. as a whole group. Right. But before and after, uh, so and then two, uh, four or five sessions, I think that ended up with the five sessions, two, three yeah. hours. And then every two, two, three weeks. Yeah. I have to go back and be take, clear yeah. about it, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but around that time. But before that, I also met with that the, uh, project managers yeah. who reached out to me. And then after the training is done, of course, I met with them and then give the data collection system. And this is how it's, so I add more, added more consultation work after that yeah, yeah, monitoring yeah. from my end. So the training itself with a group was done um, across five times, I believe. Mm -hmm. I hope. The <laughs> five. Because I remember there's one time we need to extend one time or not. Mm. And then uh, two to three hours. And some assignments were done in a provided to them to work mm -hmm. on as a mm -hmm. team, individual level, group level. 
Um, so it's a very brief model, hmm. I believe. The data collection was for a long time because it's a whole process of, of um, you know, you know, resource allocation discussion, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that was a long time. But I can I can share the PowerPoint that um, Dr. Ogura, he's a project manager, and also Dr. Ito, they mm. uh, create the PowerPoint to present the, at the conference. I can share the PowerPoint as well. Cool. Um, so, but other pro-social work can be a long project. So Dr. Paul Atkins and... Um, Robert Stiles, Dr. Robert Stiles, they mm. have done so many great projects at the national level or world wow. level projects. Yes, and then that can be one year, two years. Um, so it can be a long-term project. Mm. Uh, project. Wow. And again, what we can emphasize, and we can, be, I mean, I'm really hopeful that our behavior analytic approach at the very last level of um, actual, like the engine, like, okay, let's go, let's make a plan and get to it. Um, if we kind of leave it up to the group, the community or group, after the training of pro-social, yeah. we can kind of imagine things might not work. Why? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the reinforcement, the schedule, re schedule of reinforcement might be missing. Mm. other contingents will fall apart or things will move around. So behavior analysts are really good at kind of, you know, predict that can happen. Mm -hmm. So we can do the prevention there, mm. right? Preventative mm. measure. Mm -hmm. So that's why where I offer the monitoring system from my end using Excel sheet um, and then kind of looking at the reinforcement schedule based on the task analysis that they actually shared with me. Mm. Um, I embedded, embedded some meetings with them to reinforce the good behavior changes mm. gotcha. and then cumulative action nice. completed. And then also send a message to the group, the whole entire participants, um, that way the reinforcement is coming. And then what it means mm. is that I'm saying that my message or feedback was a reinforcer. Yes. Hopefully, <laughs> but again, so that tells uh, tells us the importance of the rapport building between the facilitator, yes, and the co uh, and the participants. Right now, when you do pro social work, sometimes at the very beginning, since the conflict might be so huge in a group, mm -hmm. and we are invited, I'm you know we are invited to the whole conversation, then. Mm -hmm. You can see the per different perspectives that they might have towards or biases they might have towards us. Some of them will say like, oh, you are brought in because we have issues, right? I know, but I do not mm. agree to my president. I do not agree to my CEO, but the CEO yes. brought you in. So yes. whatever you do, go for it. I'm just going to sit here. Yeah, I'll watch. Yeah, <laughs> That can happen. So that's when our behavior analytic skills really helps we can observe the whole entire group behavior dynamic mm. and see where the behavior turns on turns on so it's kind of a you know uh, turn on turn off uh, yeah analysis we're doing 
and then kind of read the contingencies. And that might be one of the very specific strengths that we have Yeah. that other facilitators might not have. Hmm. Makes sense? Because we are behavior analysts, so we can actually see where yeah, the behavior turn on, the behavior turn off, yes. and what's happening in the group, the contingencies, like, oh, ABC, ABC, we can analyze ABC during the conversation in vivo as mm-hmm. it happens. Mm-hmm. So we can be very sensitive to the dynamic of it. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Mm. So that's, and again, of course, it takes practice. It takes yeah. um, a lot. Like when you do the parent training, like two parents in front of you and your clinicians in front of you and your behavior analyst and doing a parent training, you often see that too, right? And when you tell the parent something, the parent will say something and the other parent will look like this. What, really? Mm. Mm-hmm. And then therapist, therapist will go like, uh, that's <laughs> not... <laughs> so we can kind of see that, right? Uh, it's yeah. the same thing at our um, social work too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if uh, I want to get into uh, your article soon, but this, the, uh, I mean, there's a lot of behavior analysts there listening that are probably, you know, have heard tidbits of some of this stuff and heard about prevention science and heard about pro social. If they're familiar with like ACT matrix, they've then heard about the pro social matrix and so on. And, but it sounds like, you know, some of this work is a bit, is also outside of, you know, ABA and in, in some of these other areas. How does, how does a sort of a behavior analyst that's not sort of familiar with this area, how do they, how do they kind of get into this realm of prevention science and pro-social and work and whatnot? That's a good question. It's about the scope of practice and scope of competency, correct? Yes, and yes. I think we had a huge conversation on the scope of practice on ACT before, mm-hmm. and the competency is coming up. And now we're talking about the pro-social um, scope of practice and competency. Mm-hmm. When I started doing ACT, um, I, of course, I was, I questioned about the practice and also scope of practice and also scope of competence the practice wise if we can describe the processes of act uh, or processes of pro-social in a behavior analytical language Mm. then i think it's good instead of the fluffy language gotcha uh, which takes practice so I think I missed a lot, mixed the language as I was explaining what I was doing for these cases and that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mixed the language of contingencies, like the ABC and the yeah, dynamic yeah, yeah. of the sensitivity. Uh, so those are all really combined behavior, very vague language and a specific language. Yes. If you ask me to explain everything I do in a pro-social processes or act, act uh, training or RFT interventions, it's very, I can explain in a very behavior analytic way. It's yeah. always analysis of the, you know, contingencies and then where the reinforcement are. Right. And then where the responses are. So that training is needed. Um, and some of the articles about the practice of practice have been published. Uh, one of the you know, bigger ones, the big ones is, the important ones is by Dr. Tavox and Mm. at all to yes, 20, yes. Uh, 22 20 i think they yep. think, um, yep. yeah yeah and then uh competencies have been discussed and then dr mark dixon mm. published a book and was um dr hayes and also um but uh, dr belisle 
Yeah, the rail. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Jo- Jordan. Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, he, they, they are all amazing people. Yeah. Um, so, and also Dr. Zabo's books coming out too. Um, Acting ABA book coming out. So there are good mm. articles and the books are coming up. So mm. read them and learn it and how to translate, learn how to translate those kind of um, uh, what you want to do into more behavior analytic language. A yeah, lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. behavior analysts, I think behavior analysts are really interesting, interested in more uh, intervention using the language behavior analytically. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not the uh, talk therapy. It's not a talk interventions. No, we are not going to do that. But it's mm. bubble behavior analysis. And, uh, you know, analysis of the all behaviors, including the private events that Skinner talked about in the radical behaviorism and the cultural level of selection that we are talking about. So um, that come, well, that's why I think I was so mm. passionate about um, planning this uh, symposium and a panel that I was mm-hmm. talking about at APAI. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was so passionate about develop, developing the evolution sciences SIG. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you said. How can behavior analysts come, can learn to do yeah, this yeah, yeah. within the scope of practice, within the scope of competence? Mm-hmm. And it's really dangerous once we, you know, we kind of think that we can do this. Yay, mm-hmm. and let's do it. Yes. But it, it might actually result in a huge, I don't want to say huge, it might result in a disadvantage of the individual or group of people or culture. Yeah. So we need to be able to be skilled at analysis of the direct contingencies, which we can observe. And we need to be skilled at the analysis of the indirect contingencies or verbal behavior that are not maybe spoken or mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. And then identify the functions. So when we talk about, we often say, um, first we analyze the way the behavior pattern, the way we usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me, the, mm-hmm. it was not connected to the charger. So mm-hmm. the way we usually do um, for FBA, right, right, and then we work on intervention like we usually do. It can be uh, my hands up, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. It can, <laughs> my um, just like typical ABA uh, FBA analysis and direct contingency and antecedent modification, and then something's off. Or you know this doesn't work, then you might want to dive in to analyze a bubble behavior more mm-hmm. in depth, and then see what the hidden contingencies, and then kind of figure out how to surface it. Mm. Right? Learn, learn. Don't say figure. Learn how to surface it and yeah. analyze it. You can do the FA or FBA of that bubble behavior, right? Um, and um, turn on and turn off the responses and see where the function is and mm. then reinforce and shape the behavior. Mm. Um, that's individual level and cultural level. Um, so indirect one, I know there is um, nonlinear contingency analysis as well. So I'm right. not, I'm, I'm not skilled at it yet, but I also feel like it's a it's a continuum of the contingency, right? From the, it's not like a direct and indirect only. It's more the continuum of it. Right. And then, um, so 
it's a lot of uh, practice and exposure to the good practice that you can learn from the experienced trainers, mm-hmm. experiment, experienced ones, um, and the feedback from others that will be helpful. And be very mindful that you stick to mm-hmm. the behavior analysis principles, mm-hmm. the principles and concepts. Um, so what I usually do is that when I'm supervising other BCBAs on the pro-social work or ACT work is that yeah. they tend to explain things already nice way, uh, very kind of um, gentle way, like I yeah. was doing, I would yes. do. And then I challenge them, like, okay, so explain everything in the, using the behavior and the language. <laughs> right. Why do you think that response will work for you? Mm-hmm. Work for the group work for you? Why? Where's the schedule reinforcement? Mm. So what was the process called? Mm. What is that principle did you employ there? Mm. So a lot of feedback and practice of the translation mm. Mm. is also gotcha. helpful. Sometimes um, there's one one thing that came to me the other day from my supervisee. Um, mm, it was a hierarchical frame of RFT. That okay. was an issue within a group. But uh, the BCBA could not explain that way. You know, it's more like, oh, it's because the culture wants to respect the organization or this, you know, in this, you know, this kind of generational generation relation mm. and those things are happening. So we need to be respectful and this and that. And so, okay, all right. So the conversation we heard from the whole group, what what did you find out? What kind of frames do they have to often use in their language? And how are you going to intervene that? Mm. So, um, so a lot of kind of dissecting mm-hmm. the pieces of what we hear. And we tend to be at the risk of going to more mentalistic explanation and yes. outside of our scope, um, outside of our scope of practice sometimes we can right. happen so the supervisors um, need to be very careful about that too kind of really quick to pick it up and say give them feedback okay so mm. okay let's translate that to behavior analytic language and tell mm. me why it's going to work based on yes. that principles gotcha gotcha yeah so that's our strengths i'm yep. kind of putting my emphasis on it that's the strengths that we all have of, as a behavior science field we mm-hmm. do that other fields of science might not have. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that answers the question. I mean, it's it's really the same answer to the question of but how do you how do you learn any area? Um, you know, you've got to you've got to you've shared some great resources around scope of practice and scope of competency, and some of these books that are coming out that can kind of you know break some of that stuff down. But then, of course, supervision is really important, and mentorship, and getting feedback, and and you know, it, it's it is. I can see how easy it would be for someone to uh, you know stop being behavior analytic and move out of their scope into some other areas with this stuff because it's not. You know, it wasn't pro socials not you know implemented by a bunch of behavior analysts. Some are, but there's lots of other folks and lots of other disciplines, and they're all using different language to sort of to sort of learn this. So I imagine every person, every discipline has to kind of um, um, you know also stay within their scope 
you know, and so some of those folks got to be careful not to get into the behavior analysis realm. And I don't think they will. I don't think many folks are too, you know, pumped to start speaking in behavior analytic language unless they're in the field. But That's a good point, Ben. Hmm. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, please. Uh, two things came to my mind. Yeah. Um, some field might define behavior analytic or behavior analysis behavior science in a different way that we use. Yes. So when I, uh, and pro-social work is a collaborative work across the disciplines. So mm. one thing we need to be, we need to be open to is that mm -hmm. we need to be able to kind of open to other sciences and disciplines right. and collaborate. And like you said, need to be kind of, you know, remind ourselves and mm. okay, be careful what we say, scope of practice, scope of competence. At the same time, you know, um, we need to be really kind of respectful to collaborative other fields. Yes. That's one. And the collaboration really helps us to evolve, mm. right? The evolution mm -hmm. science, the evolution principles. Yeah. You, We're doing you know, it ourselves here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If the behavior science, our field are actually stick to a like, really kind of rigid way of behaving right or maybe now. Maybe you're working yep. towards a BCBA and need to find yep. the right supervisor. So that's that's a very important point as a field. So much more the other field is that supervisor um, and supervisee. Something for you supervisors, about they offer the, easy meeting documentation, sorry, competency my, tracking, monthly up. verification forms, um, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, well, just about just about sort of with built-in auditing. Monthly I think the language is the forms, big part, and about how fields, quizzes, and more. You know, are going if you're to looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where in, you can get BCBAs social, and find yeah. your perfect match, kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is interlocking. Right. So the, the interesting thing that we often hear, especially my country, you might hear this within a CBS, a context of behavior science uh, community as well, that you often hear that um, behavior science, behavior analysis or behaviorist, mm. uh, we are behaviorists, we are behavior scientists, we do use behavior sciences from yep. other, other from, from professionals that we behave in this field might, for example, ABI, might, I don't want to say ABI mm. only, but the, our field of applied behavior analysis or behavior mm. analysis will feel like this is not that, not, you know, behavior analysis. They might actually say, they do actually say we are behavior scientists. We are behavior, behavior analysts too. We use behavior, behavior analysis. Um, and at first I was puzzled. Mm. I was puzzled, like, well, this is not the way 
I <laughs> teach or I got trained yeah, in yeah, analysis. Yeah. But ah, uh, so it tells us about how the psychology, the field of psychology in the behavior science kind of evolved across the years, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the uh, development of the RFT after Skinner, the Baba behavior, and then um, Dr. Stephen Hayes RFT came up and that came up and more language analysis at a different level mm. came up. And so, and the radical behaviorism before that. Mm-hmm. Um, so our field is going this way and that way, probably it's kind of going this way again, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to say is that, so I, when I hear, part of me, when I hear clinical psychologists, right, who does the talk therapy a lot, using ACT, when these individuals mm-hmm. say, I use behavior science and behavior analytic way of analysis. And I go, okay, let me see. And then when I see that uh, analysis of they do in their clinical notes or what they do, it might be different from what we expect. Yeah. However, though, the principles are there really too. And if you observe their sessions, we can analyze what they actually do. Mm-hmm. And can be very behavior analytic, of course, depending on the level of the you know professionals. Mm-hmm. The conversation too, when I was at the ACT Japan conference uh, two months ago, they often talk about um, you know behavior science, behavior analysis, and science of it throughout the um, conversation, which is great. I was happy mm-hmm. to hear that. But sometimes part of me think like, oh, that might not be exactly what we might say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that time, how would I respond to it? Mm. If I responded in a really harsh way, I cannot collaborate with them anymore. No. Nope. Right. But uh, if I responded this way, I might be able to collaborate with them more and mm-hmm. see what they're what they mean what they need mm-hmm. and what i need from them and then we can collaborate mm-hmm. so um that's another thing i like to share that we need to be very kind of be open and careful um and know the fact that other fields might say behavior analysis in a different from a different perspective mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and that's also okay it's not all it's not if there's presenting themselves that I'm a behavior analyst like a BCBA, then that's a problem. Sure. But um but, but if they not, are no. they, yeah. Um and there's an, another I think I'm not in the best position to describe this, but um when RFT came up by Dr. Hayes, um it's totally behavior analysis, right? Because he came from the experimental and behavior analysis and the yeah. experimental field and everything he did across years and then realized that something's missing. This is what we need to do. And then, you know, he came up with a theory and that's an RFT. Um, but so there's a huge foundation of behavior analysis in it, the knowledge mm-hmm. and skills and the history of it in it, right? Sure. Um, then application of that 
from that time might not be specifically explaining and touching on it until mm. recently. Mm. I feel like, mm. which is a clinical application, clinical application of the RFD Act is are, are so important because it's it's very powerful and helpful. Um, but alongside the explanation was probably wasn't you know is not was not provided too much in a race behavior analytic analytic way mm -hmm. in those clinical applications or research yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's coming up more and more totally. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is that um yeah that's where we see the discrepancy. Yeah. In the language, like when we see, when I'm collaborating with a psychiatrist and psychologist mm, or a mm. co consultant, and they, they explain act or pro-social way um, from their field perspectives. And yes. they also said behavior science as well. Yes. And then I go like, okay. Mm-hmm. Think, and then yeah. I need to go like, oh, okay, that's what you meant. And yes. this is a way we can collaborate. This is actually, that's a good point where we can say, like, okay, I want to collaborate more. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think, I mean, this, it makes me think about a couple of things. Um, one is ment mentalism and, and kind of, you know, I've always struggled with mentalism, not in the sense of, I, I get that as behavior analysts, we need to talk in, you know, objective, uh, you know, ways and 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 use our behavior analytic kind of language to sort of describe things. And we're not going to use, you know, sort of these mentalistic terms. But everybody else is, uh, you know, everybody else is not in our field is going to use mentalistic terms to describe things. And I think historically, as a field, some of us haven't done a great job in terms of what you're saying around collaboration in that we've sort of said, well, you're just being mentalistic. Stop talking, you know, um, um, you know, you need to talk in behavior analytic terms. But the fact is, is only we're going to be talking in behavior analytic terms. And so, but, and just because someone else is talking in mentalistic terms doesn't mean we can't continue, we can't respect that and continue to analyze things behavior analytically. Um, and so, you yeah. know, I, I and then I think the second piece is going to your point of, you know, as people say we're in behavior science and whatnot, is uh, behavior analysis. Um, and, you know, and, and this, may, this may have been Skinner's doing or whatever, but, uh, you know, has sort of co-opted a lot of terms that are, have that have that can be applied in other contexts, you know. So this is why there's so always so much confusion over the word punishment, for example. Right. Mm. Um, because punishment forever has been you know, associated with corporal punishment and spanking and and the like. And, you know, the strap, as it were, when when, you know, your my parents were kids and whatnot, um, uh, as opposed to sort of, you know, adding or removing something from a from a from a, you know, a contingency that, you know, decreases behavior. Um, and and lot, there's lots of terms in, I think, behavior analysis that are applicable that, that can be utilized in other in other disciplines, but maybe not maybe doesn't have the exact same meaning. And if if we're going to be collaborative, like, you know, which is clearly the, the needed for these sort of community-based interventions, we need to respect that other folks are going to also use those words. Yeah, exactly. And then, 
Yeah, and then yeah, collaborate. We can learn their terms too. Yes, I always right? that's fair. Yeah, right. Eh? Yeah, right. And uh, when I do the clinical work and supervision, um, you know, we often use this metaphor, right? You know, uh, let's say if you are the you know doctor, a physical doctor, right, the mm -hmm. general doctor, physician. Yes. Right. You need to know all the medications that you prescribe and mm -hmm. you need to know the side effect and the effects of it, the dosage that you provide. Yep. And then you need to be able to tell the pharmacist and the system and also the nurses, this is what it is. I need you to do this, do that. That language needs to be very field specific. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. you when you say that to your patients, you need to use the you know, patient-oriented language, really, in mm -hmm. an understandable way. So you need to change the language the way you, need, you know, the, depending on the audience. Yeah. And you need to also know the variety of meds. Yeah. Right, the treatment meds and also treatment. There might be some exercises that they can do or professional mm -hmm. that we can, mm -hmm. you know, refer to. Um, so if your general, general, uh, Physician does not know those options, that patients will have a limited options as well. Yeah. So we need to be, you know, you know, uh, expose ourselves to other fields and other things mm. and then kind of being able to analyze, go, okay, this is actually kind of scientifically proven, so I can prescribe this med. Okay, mm -hmm. good. This is actually good. I heard from the other disciplines, but I don't think this is going to help, you know, scientifically, you know, clinically help my patients. So I'm not going to mm -hmm. use it. And or I've used it before; it didn't work. And then blood testing results showed it didn't help with this part of patients. Then mm -hmm. um, I'm going to change the dosage of usage this time, or I'm not going to use. It. I'm going to try. So that analysis applies to everything we do. Yeah, don't we? Uh, yeah. that's that's um metaphor I, I yeah. Would just say. yeah 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 and don't do don't become a surgeon when you're just trained as a <laughs> not trained as a you know physician right yeah exactly exactly yeah all right let's um shift a bit at the at the beginning of uh the talk when you're kind of uh, telling your story of kind of how, you, how you got in the field and why you got in the field uh a, a, you know a, a big part of your motivation was to you know, uh, improve improve things for families and folks uh, in Japan. Um, and so uh, with that uh, and kind of the first thing that I found obvious, the, 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 the sort of the impetus for this whole conversation in the first place was a, a, an article that you had uh, published uh, um, in the Journal of Child and Family Studies Um um, on using act, act, the ACT matrix um, uh, with uh, Japanese-speaking mothers with distressed in the U.S. I'd love to hear kind of about um, kind of the background first of kind of why why you decided to do this work, and then we could kind of get into the study itself. Yes, thank you. Um, so when I, um, first of all, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Japanese only, but a right. lot of, um, yeah, cultural disparity and uh, mental health disparity, the behavioral health disparity and the educational, you know, um, resources availability yeah. to, um, you know, disadvantaged families or some kind of barriers to reach out to those mm -hmm. resources are mm -hmm. so huge. And my culture, my Japanese culture is very 
like cultural stigma, self 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 concealment is so mm. huge. And then I knew those um, the huge barriers are there, and these individuals not getting enough enough services, mm-hmm. uh, enough support, and they are hiding sometimes. And another aspects of that from my Japanese, like my own country, I live in California now. So, mm-hmm. but uh, back in Japan, and I also still still work and consult for Japanese people. But um, our culture, because of, of the you know high expectations mm. and you know self-concealment and we say meaning that we say things but we actually don't mean it or mm. it's such a shame-oriented culture so we do not share our challenges in our pr- private lives mm. so we internalize a lot and then it's kind of shameful to reach out to get the services mm. uh, or welfare and uh, so many societal issues we are famous it's an infamous for um, high rate of suicide, right? Mm. Suicide rate is really wow. high. And we often hear that um, uh, some really sad news of 80, 50 issues based on, um, there's an called 80, 50 issues, mm. 8050. That is the you know, parent, parents are in their 80s and children in their 50s. And then the children are not sometimes working or have some kind of issues. And mm. the parents are getting older, they're, get, they're living together. Um, so some social withdrawals in their 50s and 60s still, mm. the 40s, 50s, 60s and social withdrawals because of the economics, uh, other things happened in the past uh, or disabilities that have, they have. They are keeping that themselves, those issues mm. in their own small family unit. Wow. And as a result, uh, we hear uh, once, a year, once in a while here, the really sad news of the parents in their 80s or 90s or 70s kind of um, end their lives. And before they do, they end their child's life in their mm. you know, child in adult child's mm. lives. Not that often, but we all, we can hear that news. Yeah. Um, or vice versa, when um, uh, the parents in their really late, uh, very, uh, older parents are getting some difficulties and, you know, dementia or any challenges that they have and mm. children in their 50s they do not know what to do it's it's a shameful thing to reach out and tell that they are struggling their own family mm-hmm. units mm-hmm. because we should be helping each other we should mm-hmm. be self-sufficient mm-hmm. we should be mm-hmm. good enough to help yeah. each other right so um what happens is that, you know the things kind of accumulate in the family unit yep. and then we see the really sad and the results and that news are not that surprising. Mm. Um, child abuse too. So more cell cell family, you know, systems are becoming more uh, single cell family systems uh, structures yep. becoming more yep. more popular in Japan. Yep. It used to be two or three or you know three generations living together, but it's more right. very single unit family. Gotcha. Um, the parents do not know how they were so overwhelmed with the societal and cultural expectations and the financial yep. burdens. And they do not, again, parents do not want to. Some parents might be so scared to tell others, like, I'm having a hard time parenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the child abuse and neglect, um, some really sad news we hear. Um, and then where is that coming from? Right, it could be 
of course, many variables in you know, societal issues and you know economical issues, political issues. Um, mm. But if we look at that, you know, system where these resources are available and you know why they're not reaching out. Uh, of course, system itself may be a problem, but they are doing actually a good job. They have created a lot of hotlines and you know, you know, free services, mm. and you know, monitoring system too. However, though, individuals and families members are not reaching out. They are not utilizing those services, right? Um, so because of the cultural kind of background, probably yeah, and yeah, self concealment, yeah. right? Um, so that's our kind of very um, kind of biased, but in general, you know, stereotype of my culture. But right. you, based on those sad news, you kind of see kind of some issues, right? Mm-hmm. And then those families come to the States mm. or other areas outside of the country that, you know, they move to different countries, not only in the U.S., but other countries and start living their own lives with mixed marriage sometimes. Or um, it could be, you know, the um, work-related transfer to other countries. And they need to raise their own children, start their own life, different culture, different language. Mm. And um, different behavior patterns that they have to learn and adapt. Um, and they also come with this kind of shame and self-concealment. Yep. The language barrier, all those are intertwined. And guess what? A lot of these barriers resulted in same thing, not reaching out, not using those services and mm. overlooked. Mm. Right? If the children, uh, if we focus on the children, the younger children and the developmental disabilities, um, if those little children are, um, exhibit the symptom of any diagnosis or any illness, any behavior mm. pattern related problems, mm-hmm. then welfare, welfare or insurance or school, you know, kind of kind of identify those things and yep. doctors will identify those things and school would identify those things and the services often kicked in especially in america we have mm-hmm. a really great uh welfare system and also now nowadays right welfare mm-hmm. system and also monitoring system um and a school you know uh, the law really requires school to provide the services and I, right. uh, IDA. Yeah, yeah. So it's there. But if these families are not sharing, keeping it to their own family unit in a small household, mm-hmm. they're going to be overlooked. Yeah. So at risk children will be left at risk. All right. And then parents also have this shame culture like, no, this could be my fault, my parenting fault. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, and and also the fear for the diagnosis, the 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 label, the biases that come with it right. is still so huge in Japan, in our own country. Mm. So some parents are so scared to get the diagnosis name, so they might not actually be willing to have their children get tested. Right. Right. Um, wow. But this is a developmental disability only. But guess what? When the children get to the adolescence age, and then they all have this, you know, rebelling, you know, rebels and all kinds of, you know, sure. kind of development level 
the appropriate behavior. But guess what? If you have a closer family and then individuals with you can communicate in you know, in your own language with the same norms and conceptualization of the issues, they're mm. more relaxed to talk about. But if you don't have anybody around you to talk about mm-hmm. those issues mm-hmm. in the parenting, mm-hmm. it's again going to be left within the come you know in the house. If yes. the husband is very helpful. I don't want to say husband or your partner sure. is always home and helpful. And then um, kind of take an action together. That's good. But if it's ke- it's kept in one parent or two parents or the family unit, it becomes a huge issue. And then doing this clinical work for a long time, realize that um, we might be overlooking a, a lot of at-risk children at mm-hmm. least parenting parents who might not be getting the services that they deserve they need uh, because of these cultural barriers uh, mm. language barriers and their own stigma their own biases that they have mm. um, and that can be said to across many um, populations like you know we know that you know, black populations are really um, might not be using the the mental health services as much as we would like them to do. Um, Asian populations and immigrants are really low, the same level compared to the you know you know white population in America too. Yeah. So those disparities are there. Then why are these disparities kind of exist? And so that's where I kind of dive, kind of wanted to do this study. Mm. And I wanted to do the reach out, the prevention, prevention, research prevention work. I wanted to establish and see what we can do from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. And what I was, I was telling you been before, when mm. I was developing this research, and then um, uh, just that time there was a really mm. sad, sad. Um, thing happening in my my own culture my own mm. culture and my own community mm. um there was a high school shooting mm. at a high school really close by to our house and then mm. um it turned out to be um um the shooter was um 16 year old asian american boy mm. and some some students and passed away um, some people passed away during the shooting time, and he actually took his own life. Wow. Um, and the impact was so huge in in the community. And as a parent, same age, same background of the child that we have, uh, same age really. And my my son also attended that high school. Um, a couple of days a week for his extracurricular activities. So wow. I knew. I feel so close. In the morning, I still remember the whole entire community had a high alert everywhere. The phones ringing, mm. everything. And I had to yank my son back to the car as I dropped mm. off the, him. But um, what happened, uh, what came to me at the time as a parent and also clinician was so, so huge to me. Mm. As a parent, as a natural response, fear, right? And, and I live in a kind of safe, kind of calm, small community. So I did not expect that to happen. Yeah. There's fear. And also, um, 
the same background, uh, same Asian, Japanese-American, 16-year-old yeah, yeah, yeah. boy at the time. And like I thought the community would probably kind of finger point us mm, at us. Mm-hmm. And some biases might start developing. Sure. I was so scared of that. Um, I bet. Um, it didn't turn out that tend to be that way. Mm. So that was good. Um, in a sense. But at the same time, as a parent, you know, maybe many of you, just many of the listeners here who are working parent too, like who helps a lot of individuals and families and communities and organizations. Mm. We work really hard outside of a family, the community. And that's what I was doing every day, right? Um, but I realized that I did not know this family. Mm. Our, our community has only the handful of Japanese families living in my com- small community. Right. But, and I I knew most of it, most of them, right? Uh, but this family, I did not know. Mm. And this child, I did not know. Same age. Mm. Same background. Oh. Why? Hmm. Um, so I do not. We do not know um, what the motives and any, anything um, because of the whole situation and also the minor. Mm-hmm. But oh, I only can speculate. But many mm-hmm. things probably were, you know, kept to themselves. Mm-hmm. Was not shared, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. blame myself as a parent. Like why? wasn't I able to connect with this family as a mm, parent? Sure. But I um and then I blame myself like I I almost wanted to quit working in a field. I wanted to be a full-time mom. So it's mm. a really extreme, right? Yeah, I want to yeah. be you know spending more time with my family. I want to be spending more time with the community. So that's part of me. And the other part of me mm. was that uh, this is exactly why I wanted to do this research. Mm. Wanted to make things available and kind of spread this world wide so that everybody will kind of be aware of these issues, kind of kind of start point, become this point. Um, this might become the start point for the preventive science, preventive measures, and figuring yeah. out the way to to the cultural sensitive way to approach to the approach these individuals. Family mm. unit member units, um, so that we can prevent this kind of really, really, really um, sad, heartbreaking situation. Mm. So that's a little bit of cultural, uh, this little bit of background on my study. Mm. Um, and like I said before, I do not also want to create this cultural biases where. I struggle when I was writing this paper. Yeah. Because the re- reviewers wanted me to say specifically about Japanese mothers and also in the United States. So the specific title, specific naming, you know. Mm. And I I was scared if I do that, it might it might kind of limit the reader's audience. Yeah. Right. Specifically because of the title. Yeah. And also it might create more biases which I do not want. Yes, of course. Right. Um, so maybe this is a great opportunity, Ben. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. But I just wanted to know, everybody, that this is just one way of doing this prevention, preventative mm-hmm. way, the outreach research. 
Yeah. And start from there. And this can be applied to any background families and different levels. But uh, if the individuals, units, the group units are kind of hiding themselves, their own issues, and the resources are available, meaning that uh, OBM time system development has been done, but mm. the flow is not going. Why? Mm. Um, so this is just the beginning, and, and I hope that a lot of um, different populations, different communities will kind of start looking at this kind of way of uh, outreach, research, yep. and yep. extend that. So... Um, this was done during the COVID time. So I was able to do that online, which was mm. good. And the reason why I, the inclusion criteria was specifically, uh, one of the criteria says specifically that um, parents with distress with children was without, without known diagnosis. Mm. Okay, so that's how I actually kind of looked for the parents who might be really, really struggling, but they can't actually consult with anybody. They haven't actually talked to anyone else, right. but the children might be at risk. So, yeah. but the participants' children probably, I do not know, they're, I did not assess those children in this research. I did not intervene those children. So, right. um, I do not know if they actually had a diagnosis or not, but that was, mm. uh, you know, I think that's, I just want to kind of mention that. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I chose to reach out to the first generation of Japanese parents uh, to see if they would kind of stick to the interventions, right? Um, what it means is that um, treatment attrition is high. Oftentimes, mm. right? The behavior analysis our field sometimes attrition rate is high. Yes. And also um in the clinical psychology field, you know, like if you do the one week consultation, you often, you know, you see the how the you know the counseling work does. Sometimes it might not continue. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. up to the participant to be engaged in the training or yes. the therapy that time. They yes. might not come and come back. And I was, I wanted to see if this model of treatment will increase the engagement or not. Mm. Whether the parents can stick to me, stick to this intervention, mm -hmm. and also continue monitoring their own behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that's, I think that's a big piece. Um, because that's really important for us to be able to kind of stay connected, especially the prevention science. Of course, mm -hmm. now, of course, after the fact treatment too. Mm -hmm. But if we need to be able to kind of stay them, it's really important for them to stay engaged with us. So mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. another big piece of it. Um, and cultural sensitive. I made it very cultural sensitive in a sense because they cannot get this kind of outreach hands coming to them in their own language. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, in the the way they might feel comfortable to communicate, um, it's hard for us to open up and express our feelings and thoughts and emotions and bodily sensations, all those private events, in a different language than mm. our mother tongue. Right? right. If I if if you ask me to do so in Spanish, I can't, and even in English, I, you know, when I talk like this, you know. The flow of language might be there, but a really fine 
find aspects of it might not be delivered delivered to you by the way I might want, especially right. when I'm very emotional. Sure. When I'm discuss when I'm when I'm discussing my own child's problem problem behavior or any issues I might have. So, um, the reason for the language barriers and cultural barriers and limited resources available in America or different languages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and also the online, right? Sometimes in person visit might stop this kind of self concealment culture background mm. people. Yeah, might stop might stop them coming, continue coming to us. Mm. So the online treatment, I want to see if it's going to be helpful, helpful or not for them mm. to be able to stick to, and also show the results, the effectiveness mm. of the ACT training, the matrix training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the cultural barriers and yeah, those things were addressed that how, way. How uh, how do you, how do you recruit for a study when everyone is self concealed and hiding? Thank you. So I did the public posting on the community um, website that mm. you know Japanese group people across America across different countries. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I posted like there's a parent training coming up, and you know, are you distressed in the parenting in other different countries, different language? Mm. Um, would you like to be kind of um, still interested in this study? Please reach right. out. Right. So the public posting on the website where they exchange information. Mm. The other way I did was I reached out to the parent support community run by parents. Mm. Um, so I asked them to kind of uh, feel free to share that with any individuals who might reach out to you and spread the word for me. Mm. Um, and that actually helped. Mm. I think community posting, instead of you reached out to like, this specific community, you must yeah, have yeah. any, you must have this problem, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. So they actually, I actually had a lot of um, inquiry back to me. Um, and then unfortunately, a good thing or bad thing. I, I was hoping that um, lots of parents with a different age range will yes. come to me. Let's say the parents in their 70s, children right. in their 50s or 40s. Um, mm. uh, but I, no. <laughs> and then only mothers reached out to me. I did not mm. say mothers only. I said any parents, right? right? And then I said any children, any age. Um uh, but only moms responded back to me, and mm. then the children from the you know, un- until adolescents responded back to me. The reason why I'm kind of talking about this is that I also provide an adult population treatment, and not not specifically Asian community. But when I do the consultation, mm. some it could be due to their cultural background. It could be due to their uh, religious background it could be due to their you know how they were grow, grown up the parents in their in the older age like the 60s or close to 80s they tend to try their best to support their children in their own family hold, mm-hmm. household mm-hmm. with a severe problem behavior with a severe you know mental behavior issues but the parents um i would i've encountered uh, parents who who are can't handle but they try their best and then when we come in to help 
Mm. It's such a stress, stressful time because we might encourage them to kind of, okay, let's put this person in this, you know, it might be a transition time. The parents themselves cannot detect themselves because they're on responsibility, the sense of responsibility. This mm. is not how it should be. We need to be responsible for my own child. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I wanted to see if um, kind of older you know, uh, children, the parents of the older children in their old, um, later age, elderly might all reach out, but they actually didn't. It could be because mm. of website posting. If if mm. I had done it in a, a like a con, uh, consulate or the you know government level or um, upper level community level, right, right. and sure it might come back. I might have had a different population. Yeah. So. Um, so that's that. And then, um, so in, ended up the participants are for parents. And like I said, I did not intervene their children. Right. Um, so future research can do that too. But, um, mm. I wanted to kind of do the act training with, uh, the parents, matrix training with the parents with a high level of distress in their parenting. Mm. Uh, so I have the four participants here um, and what they were struggling is that of course the children's behavior my child behavior is terrible I can't handle my child I do not know what I'm doing wrong and um, the score of the distress level was so high so that was another inclusion area they have to kind of exhibit the the higher level of distress And also their own perspective on their own parenting and also child's behavior, perspective on child behavior. So that's what I did. Um, mm. um, so the four parents was distressed and then uh, experiencing the hardship in their parenting. Uh, the first generation parents living in uh, Japan, um, different level of, you know, the length of the living in America. Uh, but the children are from, I think, a five years old daughter to one mom had a five years old. Hmm. Uh, the older one was, I think, 17. Might be wrong. And then the children's problem behaviors or the concern that everybody had uh, was so different. So different. Um, hmm. So, the, okay, the older one was a 15 year old boy, it's a girl. Uh, the behavior issues that they reported was, of course, totally different. And mm. then it's it's not like when I interviewed them, when I kind of asked them, it's not to the level of like I would feel like, oh, okay, he might actually at the risk of, mm. or might get a diagnosis of this. It was not like that. It's um, it's more of um, challenges that they had during the parenting. Mm-hmm, but again, mm-hmm. I, did, I did not do the assessment, so I did not know. I did not observe. Uh, the children um, because of the way I did establish this research so I mm-hmm, do not know mm-hmm. um, so what I did was that um, wanted to see if the act training the six six steps six step protocol written mm. in the uh, doctor um, Polk uh, at all wrote down has a six steps and I wanted to see if that matrix work with that mm. six steps, it hasn't been tested there anywhere. So I wanted to see if it's actually going to be helpful to reduce the distress level of the parents. 
and mm. also increase their valued behavior that they want to do toward moves mm. or not. And also, if it's going to help us to do the parent, uh, to increase the parent, parent engagement, like I said, parent engagement is really important for us to be able to stay connected and then continue providing treatment mm -hmm. uh, knowing that um, a lot of treatment has a high treat high attrition rate rate so I want to do that as well mm. so the deep direct measures are value driven behavior as a parent what they wanted to do more so mm. we identify those target behavior for each individual and the parent engagement I measure that if they can actually attend a session mm. right as scheduled with them uh, with the uh, video and a microphone on and interact with me and also the completion of data assignments which includes um you know uh data collection mm. and also um includes the um assessments that they need to finish um send sort of um some online assessments i kind of send to them um periodically mm. so those assignments were provided to them to see if they can actually continue completing those. Mm. Um, so that's that, um, parental engagement. And the indirect measures, like I said, uh, depression measure and mm. psychological flexibility measure, if it's going to increase or not, and the parental parenting stress, stress measure. So the one is a general DAS, D-A-S-S, depression, anxiety, stress scale. So the overall uh, depression, anxiety, stress level was one measure. The other one is the stress measure, but it's a parenting stress, mm. right? Specifically related to, related to the parenting stress, not in general. Um, the other one is the, like I said, uh, multidimensional psychological flexibility inventory. So trying to see the using the six hexaflex model of mm. the act wanted to see if the uh, in, uh, flexibility increases um and inflexibility decreases or mm. not mm. so those indicative measures were uh analyzed as well and a social validity questionnaire it's really important for us to know how they actually felt like the intervention was helpful or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that was also measured um, unique, thing, unique thing about this study is that I used a um, EMA uh, system, and as I said, EMM, okay, data collection system, ecological assessment measure. Did I say it right? Mm. Hold on. <laughs> mm. I might be saying it wrong. Um, we used the PACO, um, Dr. Michael Levin, Levin, when I was kind of establishing, developing the mm. study, I reached out to him because he was using the data collection system on the mm. phone app, mm. right? So the other uh, participants can kind of, uh, you know, notice their own behavior uh, in the moment and also kind of respond to it, which is a data collection. Mm -hmm. So um, in vivo data collection, instead of they recall what they did, and uh, also that system allowed me to set up the reminder or notification that pops up mm. so i said the uh high peak time that they they chose like okay during this time three hours and the notification will be randomly 
uh, center them mm-hmm. to kind of kind of notice what they are doing. Am I engaging mm. the body driven behavior or not? And then take a picture of what they do, mm. and also kind of discriminate whether they are engaging towards a toward about toward behavior or away behavior. Got it. Right. So that system really, really helped is because that provided them with the opportunities to work on the discrimination training again of mm-hmm. the toward move and away move. Mm. Uh, so that data collection system was very unique because uh, oftentimes we often see that after st- act, um, articles. Mm. That uses the you know self data collection. They can ask the parents to tally or take notes. Yeah. Um. But that's not that they have to take a picture of what they're doing, and also discriminate this and that. That becomes a data collection as mm. well. So that system was really helpful and unique. I think new apps and new way of doing so, um, ecological weather way of data collection is coming up. So I think the future researchers should look into other options as well. But at the time of the research, I used the PACO system. Mm. Um, and so that's the data collection. Um, and then when I did the intervention, I of course you know met with the participants um did a brief screening and uh, report building and identifying what they really do more or less to the value-driven behavior and dr gold um had her very kind of um um really outstanding research that to us mm-hmm. uh, that actually measured the value-driven behavior that 2018 mm-hmm. so i kind of came got the idea from it asked them to identify three um target behaviors based on the values that you mentioned, what that you want to do more or less. Mm. So they identify those behaviors and each individual had a really, 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 really unique ones because mm. of the values are different, right? Right, of course. And then topographical, the operational definition of that can be vague, however, though, very specific to each mm. individual. So mm. some of them, and one of them said, I just want to spend more time with my children. Um, so, okay, so how does that look like? Um, so that's something we did identify it and then start collecting base data, baseline data using the app, mm. um, app on their phone, downloaded on the phone. Yeah. And then training of the app sessions. Um, I broke down the six steps into three training sessions. And I went through those um, steps and I also changed some metaphors or practices uh, as it shows up in the in the participants' language, mm. right? Because we need to be sensitive. So we cannot use some metaphors. We cannot use some, you know, steps just mm. because it's written down there. Because if it doesn't function as a stimulus and a SD, for the individual, or it doesn't work as a reinforcer for the individual, meaning that relational learning is not established yet, or it's mm-hmm. not the repertoire in their behavior, mm-hmm. then uh, we should not be using it. Right. So some of them changed in a very contextual way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the session one, session two, session three, the training one, two, three, were uh, actually had a step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, step six, but each component were um, some language and metaphors or change the way more they can understand. Uh, if we do this in Japan, probably, 
it's different. The only in, in Japan for Japanese parents. In America, Japanese parents with the diverse experiences in the parenting. Mm. I found some uh, metaphors are very unique. Like, okay, yeah, that's a common thing in a you know immigrant, the first generation parenting here, huh? Right. So those things happen. So that was already um um i think that's unique and we we should be doing that we should mm. be uh being flexible using a metaphor which one to use or come up with that stimuli mm. that might help them kind of work on a discrimination training mm. i keep saying discrimination training um is that is because act matrix itself is to me it's a tool for me to for us to do the multiple exemplar training mm. of the discrimination training, right? Discriminating the verbal stimuli. Yep. And the more we do it, the more we do it, we are working on the transformation of a stimulus function, meaning that the very beginning of the intake or uh, the training session one, the parent might say, I hate this or I can't stand this. This way of tone, the tone way of saying, the more aversive stimuli coming in, and the reaction coming, you know, the body reaction come with it. But the more we do this throughout the training, the same language come up, right, as a response. Mm. However, though, the way they say it can be like, yeah, my child is so terrible. <laughs> He's awful. <laughs> I cannot stand it. Right. right. Whereas I really can't stand it. I just mm, really mm, don't mm. do this anymore. I want to go back to my own country. That I didn't. I, I, I almost want to, you know, spank my kid. They might say it at the very beginning, but they said, "I, I wish I could spank my kid." <laughs> <laughs> really fun way. So, the more we do it, those verbal stimuli that come to their own head. Right, mm. the verbal behavior, private events, the reaction response to that changes, meaning mm. that the function of the stimuli of the verbal stimuli changes. Yes. So, the more we do the multiple example training by actually they noticing those uh, stimuli in themselves and discriminating them and working on um, uh, act processes in a very in this system way. Uh, that was very helpful. So that data collection was also helpful too because the data collection through PACO, when a notification comes up, they are prompted to say, are you, uh, to discriminate, uh, are you engaging them move mm -hmm. uh, away behavior or towards? Mm -hmm. So they go like a, they look around, take a picture and say, well, I'm yeah, I'm away now. <laughs> and I'm in tours now. Um they can also freely leave the comments on that too. That way we can discuss when we come back to the training session. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was really interesting. Um I'm do we do we want to dive into the each step of the intervention? Well, that's something they can no. use. They can yeah, read, no, right? they can read it. I I I I love the I love that this is not a, a, a intervention study for the kids. So the the the, the kids are a problem, uh, but in the beginning of the study, they're just very well. Distressed is a good word. They're just very, you know, um, helpless and and uh, 
and and you know heart you probably if you were able to sort of measure like cortisol and pulse and those sorts of things imagine all those would have been quite high and whatnot and now you and now it's well my kids are still brats but but i'm relaxed about it when i say this and and yeah. and, that, and that's going to have a huge sort of impact i think and so what what kinds of i think we don't really need to go through the steps so i'm sort of thinking how could something like this be extended one now that you've been able to sort of relieve that distress what what how could this sort of help them going forward help the participants or yeah yeah well just help help folks in general so like if you're able to reduce their 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 distress uh but their 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 children are still you know right that's a good Evil. point. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, to the eyes of parents right away, if we talk about it laughing right away, that's actually good because the parenting is not like a smooth ride. It's a roller coaster throughout. Yeah. yeah. Um, my children are now in kind of adult age now, but um, they're still handful to me. I mean, they don't need me anymore, but they, mm. they act, what they do actually makes me go like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, what happened was the psychological flexibility. So the measures I took, we collected, um, showed an increase in the psychological flexibility mm. a lot. And that means that they can actually respond to those aversive uh, stimuli or situations in a very flexible way through mm. the lens of self-observation, uh, like self-observing behaviors mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. being able to discriminate, hey, you know, this is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. And this is mm -hmm. what I'm going to do in the service of my values towards my towards my values, toward, mm -hmm, towards mm -hmm. that way. So the behavior pattern can be developed, right? But of mm -hmm. course, it needs to be uh, across time. I'm sure more aversive situation will come up, aversive stimuli, stimuli come up in our lives, right? In the, mm -hmm. At any point. So again, the cultural level, the group community level of intervention, creating a you know, supportive environment where the parents, this behavior flexibility and the psychological flexibility mm -hmm. can be maintained. Mm -hmm. And shared, uh, the cultural level of the develop uh, the intervention needs to be happening to maintain this flexibility in the behavior mm -hmm. and psychology, mm -hmm. psychological level. Um, so that's uh, that's need to be done. Uh, like I said, psychological flexibility level increased and anxiety level decreased tremendously. And what's Good about this is that engaging in a value-driven behavior that they chose to do with their own children, with their own family, guess what? It's actually interlocking contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, I talked about the meta contingencies are unit and then um, macro and meta and interlocking contingencies, like in a Dr. Sigrid Grant's study, mm. uh, the, the, the theory and the model is really important. Once that, you know, the the child, the parent's behavior changes, the child's behavior changes, mm -hmm. and then a positive interaction starts developing. And that's actually became the reinforcing system throughout the schedule, throughout the study that I did not have to do anything. Mm. The parents become more flexible, engage in a value-driven behavior, yep. and the children themselves kind of start kind of responding to it. And the reciprocal reinforcement system, the contingency developed within the family unit, 
and some of them even reported to me that parent of um uh father the partner became more helpful mm. kind of engaging more conversation and mm. interactions really uh and one of them said uh, the parent the you know partner himself probably has some kind of um maybe might have some kind of diagnosis uh but it's not clear and mm-hmm. but he and so that actually was a part of distress could be but now she is more flexible in understanding the mm. partner's difficulties because he she sees that in both of them, child and the father. Mm. Um, so she was engaging in more and more value-driven behavior that she identified so that because she already realized that this really, really changes the whole dynamic of the family. Mm. So the reinforcing system started building in, building in and up and continued. Um, so that probably is another helpful thing when we mm-hmm. actually reached out to the parent and they helped them become more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in general, I mean, this is only the one scope of this research. Sure. So I'm sure there are more we can do, but that's something that I've noticed that as well. Mm. And the biggest thing about this study, um, of course, the value-driven behavior increased and maintained across time, which is great. You know, of course, we want to continue doing that uh, follow-up. Yeah. The other thing is that... Um, ZigZag um, is an autism therapy management platform. And At its engagement core, was really ZigZag good seamlessly allows management I programs, I was using adding, that, editing, not the phone changing app, long-term and short-term objectives if on the I go. Was using paper data ZigZag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site and automatically calculates the progress, right. providing you with session if summaries uh, and graphs in real time. ZigZag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. ZigZag is based in and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is science. You know, some parental collected data or um, uh, I don't want to say that happens a lot, but it can be because of the hardship that they go through every sure. day. It's response effort is really high for Agreed. them to collect data. Absolutely. Right. Having a paper data collection system. But uh, the prompt really helped to them to do the in vivo mm-hmm. engagement. Um and also the reinforcement system is also it functions as a reinforcer too, right? Mm-hmm, and then they can actually mm-hmm, go, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And they also encourage to open up the app when they notice outside of a three hour kind of um uh peak time or target time, yep. if they notice that engaging the be engaging the target behavior outside of the three hours, 
feel free to mm. feel free to um, open the app and collect data. So that's what they did. And they actually did more and more because they actually mm. enjoy doing that. And taking a picture <laughs> was actually fun. And I was mm. also kind of having so much, uh, that was so reinforcing for me too, right? Because mm. the, the pictures that they sent to me, it's like, oh, this is fun. You're doing this <laughs> with a child. And this is where you're at now. Well, that's amazing. Mm. Or sometimes they send me a really sad picture. Like, this is what happened after the child's outburst. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, but uh, that interactions kind of connectedness was also there too. And doing this single subject design study with a multiple based on design showed a functional relationship, you know, the level I wanted, we wanted. Um, so it shows the effectiveness in the, mm. the intervention uh, plan, IV. Um, but another thing is that we also are, were curious where uh, we could actually see the um, the distress distress level changes. How actually change it in the data somewhere? Yeah. So we in, we had these in uh, indirect measures we analyzed, and then I, as I said, the distress level decreased tremendously. General distress level decreased mm -hmm. tremendously, but. <laughs> the parental stress that they reported, you know, my child is terrible, <laughs> stayed high. <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. it make sense? Yeah. So that itself, the data, I, I think that's my, you know, write-up section at the very end. We wrote down that it it can be said as the demonstration of a stimulus uh, form of transformation of stress function. Um, the you know, the ACT training that we implemented helped them decrease the distress level, anxiety level mm. tremendously. And the flexibility increased. That's why they still can hold these verbal stimuli in responses to their, you know, environment and stimuli and also their own verbal stimuli, mm. internal stimuli in a flexible way and they can hold them. They can hold them instead of eliminating them. They they mm. they know that um, they will still say they will still see their child behaving in this way and that way. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. But they can hold them. They can be okay with it. Yeah, it happens. This is again. Yeah. Yep. Instead of eliminating. So that's another thing. Good thing about the ACT model. Um, Instead of um, we have this different interventions, we we hear from the clinical psychology area where, in the past, they used to say just oh, just put it aside. Can you think of this way? Can you think of that way? Mm -hmm. Or let's do exposure. Uh, let's do this way. Um, try to take a breath three times mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. calm down and move on. It's almost like it did not exist. Yeah. Right. But now, ACT model is more of the, hey, that transformation of stimulus function of those of us with stimuli. That's, I think that's the really bottom, the, um, the bottom, the heart of this. 
Mm. And being able to hold those bubble stimuli private event within themselves because it's not going to go away. You know that learning, the, um, what you learn, do not learn. You cannot unlearn the behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once mm -hmm. you actually learn to respond that way, the bubble stimuli probably stay that way. It will come yeah. back as a behavior pattern. But how to respond to that can be changed through the pattern, uh, through the power of RFT training and through the through the power of um, act model training. So um, the indirect measure results, probably I can say that is, you know, one way to that we were able to kind of identify that transmission formation of stimulus function happened. Okay. Mm. Now, this is a small number, small N study, single sub design sure. study, and we there's no... Um, functional relationship we established between no. that but we used that map and also rci to see that evolved uh, uh, to analyze that um, uh, impact level we wanted to do that to see if the impact level is uh, significant or not even mm. within the indirect measure so we did with a small n using that spe specific um uh analysis uh, analysis uh, analysis mm. uh, model. So that was uh, that that showed the significance as a model. That was very interesting. But I would like to see more a uh, larger number of studies, sure. yeah. um, kind of in embedding this indirect measure and direct measure, and mm -hmm. kind of see where that transformation transformation space function can be identified more. Mm -hmm. um, it can be RCR uh, randomized control trial study but we'll still want to see kind of direct measure too. Mm -hmm. um, so other, the future research can be addressed as well. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, really neat stuff. Um, yeah. It's been just a really cool study. Um, Yuki, so many gems today. Uh, I learned so much about so many things. I'm looking forward to playing it back when I edit it so I can relearn it all again. Cause there was just, there's a lot. It was great, um, but I really want to encourage folks to check out uh, some of the things you're you're doing at ABAI uh, in uh, less than ten days, I guess, and uh, uh, gonna start plan start start traveling soon and getting out to that. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll definitely share all of the, the the articles and the links and the and the and the, the events at, at at ABBA for everybody and 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 these great so many great resources you've talked about today that will. We'll put all the show notes for folks and uh, yeah, just wonderful conversation and wonderful work you're doing and uh, can't wait to see what's next. Thank you, Ben. Um, if I may add, I would like Please. to say thank you to you Ben, mm. for this opportunity uh, to, um, to, for me to share this. And also I'd like to say, um, show my appreciation to all of my mentors mm. and mentees um, Dr. Yours, Dr. Yor Garcia was my um, advisor, mm. and Dr. Griffiths, Annette Griffiths was also my advisor. Tommy Zabo was my committee member, and they all were so helpful developing this study. Mm. And for me to get here, um, I learned a lot from many, many people. Mm. And I, I don't think I mentioned everybody's names, but I just want to say thank you to everyone and mm. also mentees and supervisees. Because the more I do this work, the more I learn my skill deficits and knowledge mm. deficits. Yes. Right. And so it's a reciprocal learning as an you know, as a supervisor or a professor or um, 
consultant at the same time you know it's a evolution of our field at the individual yeah. level and also group so i want to say thank you very cool well thanks again for coming on the podcast thank you ben <laughs>